where the train's going down the tracks and it's about to split. And, you know, if the conductor takes it one way, everyone on the train perishes. But if he takes it the other way, there's five people on the tracks, they'll die, but everyone else on the train will live. Lights up on a park bench. Lights up on a desk. Lights, 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 lights up. Lights up. Lights up. Lights up. Lights up. Lights up. A podcast by the Ensemble Theater of Chattanooga. Oh, bastards. What do you want from me? I don't know anything. I'm nobody. They don't care. Jeez, I didn't see you there. You didn't look. That's the first thing you should do when you get tossed into a new cell. Who would I know in here? I shouldn't be here. And yet, here you are. God, I think they broke my ribs. B looks at A for a few moments. Let me see. Uh, Ow! Breathe in. Deeply. Does that hurt? Oh, everything hurts. Does breathing in hurt? I said yes. Then stop it. Stop breathing? Stop whining. Nothing to be done. Ribs have to heal by themselves. Are you a doctor? Never talk about yourself in here. Well, but I kind of like to know if the guy giving me medical advice knows crap about medicine. I'm not a doctor. (laughs) Wonderful. But I have had my ribs broken. Who are you? Nobody. Just like you. Mm, No. No, you seem very familiar. Well, you don't, so you must be mistaken. You've spoken at some of the rallies, haven't you? How would you know? Speakers always wear bandanas. Your voice. That's your voice. Whose voice would it be? I mean, I recognize it from television. You're one of the leaders, aren't you? What's your name? The leaders don't give their names. They don't? You'd be a much more convincing informant if you didn't pretend not to know the things that everyone knows. (laughs) I am not an informant. It's all over the TV, the internet, the newspapers, why they don't give their names. Well, sorry, but I'm not political. They say giving their names would endanger their families. Everyone knows this. Except you, apparently. As I said, I'm not political. And I say again, yet here you are, in the political wing of the prison. It's a mistake. I was crossing the square this evening when all these demonstrators came running at me, knocked me right off my feet. The police were right behind, and they thought I was one of them. Brought me here, beat the crap out of me, asked me a lot of questions about things I don't know anything about, and then beat me again. The police in this country, they're just thugs for the government. Sounds like maybe you should get political. Yeah, maybe. At least then I'd know something to tell them.
You'd tell them so they would stop beating you. Yeah, of course. I don't care for cowards any more than informants. I'm not a coward. All you've done is pick on me since I got here. Come on, we're two people caught in the same really bad situation. We should be trying to help each other. Why should I help you? You've been lying to me since you were thrown through that door. No, I haven't. About what? You're part of the movement. No, I'm not. I was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Eagle tattoo on your chest? The one I saw when I looked at your ribs? That's their symbol. Oh, crap. Crap. They'll find it when they strip you. But I only got it to impress this girl. God, what should I do? Next revolution. Be celibate. Please help me. Whoever you are, you're a somebody. I'm nobody. Please tell me what to do. You can trust me. Really. My name is... Don't tell me your name. Remember your family. My name is Aleska Adand. I don't give a damn about my family. Obviously. Come on. It's not like you care about yours. You don't know a thing about me. I know if you gave a damn about your kids, you'd be kicking a football around with them. Not in here trying to turn them into orphans or get them killed. Or... Except I'm not who you think I am. Help me. Please. Do you know anything? Of any use to them? You think I should tell them if I do? You? It doesn't matter what I think. It's your choice, your soul, your cowardice, not mine. And if I'm honest, they're going to get it out of you anyway. Everybody breaks. How can you, you, think I should talk to them? You're one of the leaders. How can you still believe that after what I just said? I... I don't want to be a traitor. Then don't be one. But I'm not a hero. I'm just a waiter who got fed up with things. Oh, God. <laughs> well, just tell them what you know and go home. I don't know the things they want to know. They kept asking me for the names of the committee men of the 22nd District, but I don't live in the 22nd District. Ow! Okay, cut the lies. What? Ah! This is pathetic. They beat me. They wouldn't let me sleep, used electric shocks for months. I gave them nothing, because what do I know? Then they threatened my family. Only they don't know who I am, and I know it. So now they've thrown this pitiful stranger into my cell, who thinks that in five minutes he can melt my heart with this sad, sad story. And as it turns out, he happens to need some information about my district. The very information they've been trying to get out of me for a month. God, what amateurs! No. No, I'm not a spy. 
Look at these bruises. Oh, I don't doubt they really beat you to convince me. <laughs> Why did you tell me you were from the 22nd District if you think I'm a spy? That's the one thing they do know about me. When I first got here, they also tried to starve me. But my cellmate would slip me some of his food. They caught him once and beat him mercilessly. But still, he kept feeding me. So I came to trust him. And when he told me what district he was from, of course I reciprocated. Ten seconds later, he was standing at that door telling the guards, and that's when I learned. Everybody breaks. I am not working for them. Come on. You've been fooled by a cellmate once, so they know that won't work again. Please help me. They said I just have to give them the name of a 22nd District Committeeman, and I can go home. All I know are rumors. But the rumor is that one of the three committeemen is dead. It's a convincing rumor. Tell me his name, then. What harm could come from... His family is what harm. Except, they also say he had no family. You people, you're organized into cells, right? Keep asking me about cells. I don't know. I wasn't that involved. Fine. Good luck to you. Okay. Yes. There are cells. You mean I could say he was the only committeeman my cell dealt with, so I don't know the others. Yeah. Yeah, they might believe that. Thank you. God, thank you so much. So what was his name? If I am who you think I am, how do I know you're on my side? All I know is that you've lied to me. I... I don't know. Wait, you must know all the cell lieutenants in the 22nd District, right? I could tell you my cell lieutenant's name. And then... And then what, Aleska? I'll know to trust you and tell you the committeeman's name. Well, yeah. B produces Shiv and puts it to A's neck. Oh, where'd you get that? Please, don't cut me. But if you can't tell me, I'll know you're an informant. And I should slash your throat. If I am who you think I am. Right? Right, yes. Okay, my cell lieutenant. His name is Druno Preseg. Druno Preseg. He lives on October the 12th Square. Druno Preseg. October the 12th Square? Yes. Yes, I swear it. Good. Good. I believe you. Guard! Guard! What are you doing? Guard. Stop! What are you... You're helping them? Yes. But, but you're a leader. I also trusted my cellmate with my name. And now they have my family. Jesus. I warned you. And warned you, Aleska. Everybody, everybody breaks. Guard! 
Guard! Lights fade. Hello and welcome. We are in season four of Lights Up and we are now in our penultimate episode of the season. That's fancy for second to last. Um, this is episode nine out of 10. You've taken this wild ride with us for season four and we are very, very lucky today. Well, first I wanna say hi, Christy. Oh, hi, Dana. It's so good to see you and chat with you. And we're also going to say hello to James McLinden, who is the playwright of Broken, which everybody just had the opportunity to hear. Welcome, James. Thank you. Thank you, Dana and Christy. It's good to be here. Yeah. Um, where are you joining us from? I'm in Western Massachusetts in Northampton. Oh, my goodness. What a beautiful part of the country. It is. It's been cold. We had a frost the other night, uh, so... We could use a little more spring, but otherwise it's nice. Same thing happened in New York. We had like three days of 80 degrees. And then this week it's been like a high of 60 all of a sudden. Right. We've gone backwards. Um, So broken. Let's dive right in there. Um, I guess my first, I mean, there's a lot to talk about. What I loved about broken was that it's so specific in general at the same time. You could produced this play 10, 20, 30, 50 years ago. You could produce it that far into the future. You could have this be set in kind of a fantastical um, Hunger Games-esque world, or you could have it be set in our world right now. And and, um, it's got that political feel to it, but it also is very timeless, which was really cool. Um, but I noticed in our script version, it said uh, radio play on it. Um, did you intend for this play when you wrote it to be uh, an aural experience, a radio play? I did not. It actually was a stage play. Um, and uh, after a number of productions, I realized that there were some opportunities for it, either in podcast form or in a radio play. And uh Fortunately, it largely lent itself to being uh, translated, if you will, into uh, just an oral form. And uh, and that was kind of fun to do. I've had other plays I've tried to do that with, and some of them are, are much harder to do without uh, the benefit of stage directions uh, or visuals. So uh, this one this one was relatively easy. Yeah, it was fun to kind of imagine uh, these two people negotiating space both physically and mentally in the cell it was really it was fun to let your imagination go wild listening to that yeah i definitely agree with that um we got to listen to chase parker and sj lester bring it to life um and so getting to hear our iteration was there anything that stood out to you listening in was there were there any surprises or um what was your experience of the of the reading well i thought they did a terrific job with it and uh it's it's fun with me just when you just concentrate on the words and the voices. Um, I'm always amazed at what radio actors, um, voice actors can do with no, nothing visual and just their voices to work with, uh, and, and perhaps sound effects. Um, and so it's always fun for me to see where my head goes, what I imagine the cell looks like and where they are positioned in relation to each other. 
I, I, I'm cheating a little bit because I've seen stage productions, so I know how various directors have staged it. Uh, the ones I've seen, but uh, they they just the, to use the cliche, they just paint such a picture uh, with sound. It's, it was wonderful. Who inspired this piece? When did you write it? Um, I wrote it about I want to say eight years ago, um, and uh, like most of my plays, I'm not sure exactly where it came from. It, it I often start with a couple of characters and a couple of lines of dialogue uh, and a situation. And that's how this one started as well. Uh, I found, uh, you know, the genre of the, of the cellmates, the prison drama uh, in that respect is a fun one because, you know, you have a, a very confined space um, and um, often very high stakes, often a threat of violence and the like. And I wanted to play with all of that, but I wanted it to have the political overtones that it does have. And, uh, you know, as you noted, it, it, it is specifically unspecific, um, <laughs> generally ungeneral. Uh, it, it, there's, you know, we can imagine it in different places. And I've been gratified that it's been produced around the world. It's been produced uh, in uh, Australia and the Philippines, in Scotland and England, uh, as well as around the U.S., um, and I think it does have a timelessness to it. And I tried to enhance that with, you know, the, the names and the places, you know, are slightly evocative of, of maybe Eastern Europe, maybe South America at different times, um, but, but not definitive. And I wanted all that ambiguity to be there because I think, it, you know, it doesn't matter what side they're on or what the sides are even. Uh, it's the this kind of repeating conflict that one has with a political um, process that's broken down, and where you know people are fighting in the streets and uh, and getting imprisoned, where you have authoritarianism, which you know is, is sadly ever more relevant to our world today, and and uh, and people fighting that, and so I I wanted it to be a play that could lend itself to different situations without a great deal of imagination and and hope that's what it turned out to be. Oh, for sure. I mean, I was telling Christy that it's very simple, two characters, one setting, and there's an idea there, but it's a it's a big idea. It's a phil philosophical idea. This is a play um, that asks questions and asks the audience to ask questions. So immediately I was like, well, what would I do in that situation? Um, and it also reminded me of that, uh, like very famous um, philosophy question about the train where the train's going down the tracks and it's about to split. And, you know, if the conductor takes it one way, everyone on the train perishes. But if he takes it the other way, there's five people on the tracks, they'll die, but everyone else on the train will live. What do we sacrifice for the greater good? If you're part of a movement that you think will make life better for your family in the future, how far do you go? Thank you. Um, it, it, it was fun to try to to pack it in. It's it's a two hander to keep it interesting. The the momentum the 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 upper hand has to shift back and forth. And so you know I hope as people are listening to it, they're they're wondering who's telling the truth, who isn't telling the truth, who's uh you know trying to fool whom and why, uh, who's working for who, uh, all those things. Uh, and and I think that helps you make a very dense, very rich uh, theatrical experience. I agree. Power dynamics are, are such an important tool. And I think that's really great for 
um, young writers or, or not even just young age-wise, but newer to the craft to remember that, you know, con- we talk about conflict is key, but the power dynamics within the conflict make it interesting. Yeah. Who has the upper hand is always, you know, that's the ball I think you tend to follow when you watch a two-hander. Yeah. So how did you get your start playwriting, James? How long have you been a playwright? Hmm. Well, I kind of started, I started writing sketch comedy uh, with a writing partner in college. And uh, I, I, we were both going to go an academic course and get PhDs and teach. But we had so much fun doing it that um, we decided that we'd take a little time off before we started real life. And uh, we uh, moved to Chicago. We wrote a couple of plays there uh, that uh, the first one was was very successful. And the second one was misunderstood by the critics as we prefer to think of it. Um, uh, anyways, we both ended up going to law school uh, in short order. And and I kind of thought I was done writing, but about uh, 20 years ago, I started writing again and uh, kind of reordered my legal practice so that I could spend a lot of time writing and uh, have really been doing it since then. Uh, and uh, um, really like the right brain and the left brain kind of dual activities of being a lawyer and also uh, writing plays. That's so funny. We've had a little bit of a theme and I know Christy's nodding because she's getting, we're usually right there. We have had a bit of a theme this season um, of both our playwrights and the plays involving uh, some kind of legal background and also comedy, sketch comedy backgrounds. We have talked about that and there's something it sounds like, especially this season, that kind of magically helps, you know, bring forth that art. Uh, and like you said, that right brain, left brain, you know, is kind of fun thing to do. Yeah, I couldn't work much sketch comedy into this one. I mostly most of my stuff is kind of a mixture of drama and comedy, but this one did not really lend itself to laughs, so I had to go with the drama. You said you were writing sketch comedy with a partner. Mm-hmm. Um, Prior to that, in your even earlier youth, uh, what was theater or entertainment, like what part of your life was that? Were you in high school, college plays? Were you, how did you approach, how did you kind of come to sketch write? Uh, By accident. I was not a theater kid. I did not, you know, have anything to do with theater in high school uh, or in college, Uh, the guy who became my writing partner had, had spent junior year abroad in Germany and he came back and uh, we decided, I don't know, we just decided we could do it. And we got a little a troop together on our campus and uh, and started writing. And um, it, it was really fun because we could put, put a show together and get it up in a couple of months. And, uh, you know, with uh, college students on the weekend, you had kind of a, a ready-made audience and, uh, and it was just a lot of fun. We just, you know, enjoyed it so much that we decided we couldn't stop uh, at the end of our senior year, and we kept going for a while. Um, but that's where I got the bug. I didn't have it before, uh, and I don't come out of any traditional, you know, academic theater background whatsoever. To me, that's so fascinating. That I, I, what I love about theater art is um, there is generally an aspect somewhere that will speak to someone at whatever point they are in life. And I love that. I think it's such a beautiful thing. Um, what has it been like to get some of your work produced and get some exposure for it? Oh, it's great. Um, you know, it's 
hard right now that uh, uh, the pandemic was hard and so much of live theater just disappeared. Uh, it's starting to come back and, um, and that's really wonderful. And I've gotten to the point, uh, I'm lucky enough, I've had some plays published um, and th things are getting produced. And I, I don't see most of the productions anymore, which um, seemed almost unimaginable when I started. Like you'd always like, how, how would you not go? Um, but um, you just can't and, and things are, are too far away, uh, especially for short plays to do it. So an opportunity like this is great because it's, you know, remote and yet I, I'll get to, to hear it. I did get to hear it and, and that was terrific. Um, yes, uh, uh, but, you know, seeing a play produced, there's something, I mean, the reason I write for theater is being in the room with an audience watching a cast you've worked with on a piece you wrote, there's just nothing like it. Um, that, you know, that common heartbeat that you all share as the play goes on is, you know, one of the great thrills of life, I think, uh, if you're lucky enough to have it. And yeah, that ephemeral tangibility of theater it to me and, and when you said it's just the, the uh, great thrill of life it is like this quiet thrill right to watch theater that really touched me and and it is to me that like it's tangible for a moment and then it's ephemeral that we see this show all together and no one else will ever see that show again because the next night something may be slightly different or whatever and and it's just so special and and so yeah, that's that's why I think it will never. We we talked about this a lot in early seasons with the pandemic, right? We were all questioning so much: will will theater ever go away? We had Zoom. There was so much more television and you know streaming. But I think that's part of it, that connection. And it's true, our heartbeats do sink, and that's so. It's so lovely. It is, you know, it's a built community for just a night, mm. <laughs> like as we were saying. Exactly. Um, I'd love to ask about the community that you developed when you moved to Chicago um, and what that was like when you decided to, okay, let's give it a go. We're going to do this. And in that experience, since you didn't have a technical background in theater, how did you quote unquote learn? Was it just trial and error, having things produced? Did you have writing groups? Talk to us about that move and that experience. <laughs> Well, ignorance played a really important part. Um, it's it, it's often good to be ignorant because you know if I knew what I knew now, we never would have gotten done what we got done. We went to Chicago initially. We said we're going to be there for a year, so we'll have to get a play produced this year, which we hadn't written when we got there in September, uh, or or the year would be a total failure. And we initially thought it would be a show of sketch comedy, and you know we started uh, you know going to see. Uh, troops uh, in the Chicago area, and there's a lot. And we particularly connected with um, a group called Exit Laughing, and they, they had some wonderfully talented people. They also they wrote their own stuff, but they wanted to do something more. They wanted to do something like a play, and they had backers. They had people who like really liked their work and would back them. And so we got together, and we in November we'd written some stuff, and it was mostly sketch comedy but it kind of formed the basis of what was going to be the play. And we had a backers audition. Uh, you know, we've been there for two months. We, we, we presented as excerpts of the play, the few things we had written. 
and it went well and they were all they all signed up and they you know they backed it financially uh we met uh, a, a wonderful guy who was a, a member of the uh i think it was called the lawyers for the creative arts in chicago I hope I got the name right. I think they still exist. And they provided free legal services. And, and you know, they would do the contracts and stuff like that. Uh, David Saltio was our lawyer, tremendous guy. And uh, he, you know, really put the production together from a business standpoint, because we had no idea how to do that. Uh, and so we found a theater company that had a, a show canceled for their April slot, the last slot of their season. And we got their uh, their space in the theater building, and they helped us with the technical side of thing, like they did the costumes and sets and things like that. Um, it all seemed like really normal and natural, and you know, only later did I realize like how extraordinarily lucky we were. Um, yeah, we, we were too ignorant to appreciate it at the time, but we were. And the show came together. It opened in early April, and uh, got a. a great and, and also very generous review from Richard Christensen in the Trib, uh, as well as in Sub-Times and the Reader and, you know, the big Chicago uh, 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 theater critics at the time. Um, and it ran for a number of months and uh, we <laughs> we actually paid our backers back. You know, uh, what were the odds of that? Um, uh, and, and turned a profit on the show. It was wonderful. And it just, like, uh, you know, theater's pretty easy. You just kind of <laughs> walk into a town without anything and you know you have your show done by april um so things have been harder since then but uh it, it, it was certainly the way to start that would make you want to stay with the profession uh, as opposed to many other ways yeah i mean wow talk about beginner's luck <laughs> absolutely I can claim very little credit for anything other than what we wrote because uh, the rest of it was all just you know fortune smiling on us that's awesome oh i love that Do do you have a piece that you're particularly proud of? Because certainly that sounds like an experience that, you know, that's a mountaintop experience all the way. Um, sometimes the valley experiences can be more so or even just as valuable, certainly. But do you have a particular piece that you're that you're proud of that you've worked on? Um, I love all my children. Um, <laughs> I, I, um, sometimes you have to kill them, but mainly, you know, you have to you have to say um that you love them all and i have a hard time uh picking favorites but uh yeah that, as that was my first show that will always be very special uh and yeah i wrote it with a very good friend of mine who's still a good friend today scott burris um uh that it makes it very special uh but i've, I've had a, a, a number of shows since then and you know i think in some ways my favorite one is the last one i wrote often or the the one that i'm trying to get done next uh, um, I uh, don't know if I could be more specific than that. I'm fickle that way. What was the title of this first play in Chicago? Making it, which we oh. we, we realized was just like just bait for headline writers. If the show is a disaster, you know, we we had predicted the headline was going to be "Making It Doesn't" or something like that. Uh, fortunately, it, you know, it got good reviews, but. Um, that was another thing I learned is be a little careful with your title because a headline writer may get a little carried away. That's a good point. We've never heard that point of view when talking about titles before. <laughs> <laughs> I always think about it now. I don't think I've ever changed one because of it, but it's always in the back of my head. Like, well, 
if I wanted to slam this play, what would I write? What do you What do you tend to do most? Do you do um, one acts? Do you do full lengths? Have you done a musical? What's the breadth of your work? I don't do musicals, but everything else. I don't do sketch comedy anymore. It's mainly uh, full lengths and uh, ten minute plays. I've probably done. I don't know, somewhere 15 to 20 full-length plays, and I've probably written, probably approaching 100 uh, short plays, 10-minute plays, as well as I've written a number of one-minute plays and some monologues as well. And with your full-lengths, do you often, like, do they spring out of any of your 10-minute or one-minute plays, or are they typically original, not original, but standalone ideas? That's exactly right. Initially, they were standalone ideas, but several of the plays, uh, my play Hitch, my play Comes a Fairy, uh, and some others have started as 10-minute plays. And the 10-minute play is often the first scene. Um, oddly enough, uh, you'd think it'd be the last scene or, or the climax of it. Because, you know, the, the, the rule of thumb about a 10-minute play is, you know, get in late, get out early. Uh, you know, it's really kind of the big climax. Uh, but I find um, every scene really needs to have its own climax and its own turn and the like. And, and very often with a, you write a short play and you realize this could go a lot farther. You know, I want to know what happens next. Not so much what happened before, um, but for me anyways, I want to know what comes next and where it's going. Uh, so yeah, I've had uh, maybe three, four, five plays uh, that are become fully plays uh, in that manner. And that's so interesting what you said about it being the first scene, mm -hmm. because, and, and I don't know if you felt this too, Christy, but I could see where Broken could be the first scene of a political play, right? It was fully complete. It told the story. There was the conflict. But like, what happens after he tells the guard or, you know, it, it, there's, that's, that's such a great point. And I had never thought of, um, it as being a complete first scene, I've often heard that ideas from a 10 minute play spring out, but to think of it as really setting the pace for a full length play is also pretty fascinating as far as storytelling arcs go. Have you ever thought of expanding Broken or, or do you feel like it accomplishes what you want as is? Either the spark's right there or it's not. And uh, I haven't ever figured out with Broken how to make it more uh, than it is. Um, but I revisit plays, you know, and probably this conversation tomorrow, I'll sit down, I'll think about Broken a little bit about what else I could do with it. it it's, uh, there's something uh, about coming back to plays and and listening to them or hearing them or reading them again. And, uh, you know, you see different things in it or it just sparks something and you just you just think of what the next thing is in the play. What happened when, when the guard comes or what happens when, uh, the prisoner is dragged out and, you know, the character who turned him in is left there. Uh, uh, you know, is there another prisoner who comes in or the like? You, uh, those aren't particularly good ideas, I don't think. But um, you start thinking in those terms and suddenly one of them clicks and, you know, you find yourself just writing as fast as you can. Um, yeah, so, you know, when, when I get stuck sometimes, when I don't know what I want to write next in terms of a full length, I can go back to an inventory of shorter plays and just see if there's something there that seems like it wants to be more or that I have an idea about how to make it more. As you kind of departed from sketch comedy, if you, if 
if you will, if I can use that term, do you feel like you've taken a little, a little bit more of a philosophical bent towards work? Because certainly, like Dana said, this is a fantastic, you know, analysis as an audience member of what would I do in those shoes? Um, I really enjoyed that experience. I didn't know if that tends to be a flavor that you have in some of your work now as you've progressed as a playwright. Yeah, I hope I do. Um, I, you know, I like I, I love sketch comedy when I wrote it. It tends, so you tend not to go as deep with characters um, in that, and I and I definitely wanted to do that. And for those reasons, I started I think writing. Um, I hate to say more serious stuff because I still write comedy, but things that that hopefully went deeper and and raised questions like this play raises, uh, and um, I hope most of them, you know makes people wonder what they would do, you know, and makes them think about a situation that they've never experienced and what the implications would be for their life to be in that situation. I love that you said that because I I tend to latch on towards more contemplative work, I guess you could say. And that does not always mean the dark, gritty theater, you know, it, it can, it can be very, very thoughtful or whimsical or heart and heartfelt. And, um, it's, I think that's, that's an undertone that is can truly be universal across all work. I think that's, I'm so glad you said that because it's very true. Christy is not like, I wouldn't describe you as dark or serious, but you are a contemplative, deep, big feeling person. And so it makes sense that, that you latch onto that. But she's also whimsical and romantic <laughs> and lovely and funny. Uh, you can be both. Uh, I was going to ask James earlier. You briefly mentioned in the in the interview that you don't always know where your ideas come from. Um, I'd love if you could expound upon that a little more. Is it something that like kind of hits you? Do you hear a character's voice? Do you read something in the newspaper? All of the above. How do you tend to germinate ideas, or do characters come? It is all of the above. I mean, lately I've I've written a series of short pieces about. Um, this is going to sound very dry, but you know the legislation that's being passed in Florida and Texas affecting things like uh, um, abortion uh, rights and uh, gay and trans rights and things like that. Um, it, it, I, I, I haven't done that very much. It's, you have to be careful, you know, with a play like that, that you're not writing a polemic or a speech, and you're writing actually. You've got to find the human situation that um, lets you explore it in a way that's interesting uh, but isn't beating your audience over the head. Um, and That's I, the great dichotomy if you're going to do a political piece, right? Because oftentimes, and this is my view obviously, but I'm finding that this legislation is is so broad and so... Uh, capitalistic and yet and what's left out and why it's damaging oftentimes is because the human side is left out right you know and, so that's what the theater artist's job is right right you know i think that's where you find the good stuff uh, with for example i i have a new play called safe harbor that just had a, a reading uh two nights ago and it it's set in Texas. It's focused on a hospital attorney talking to an OBGYN physician uh, about a woman who um, whose water is broken, and it, this is you know stuff that's going on right now. 
normally would have um, had a, 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 a procedure that would have been considered an abortion under Texas law, uh, but right now can't, even though you know her life is in, uh, potentially in danger uh, and the fetus is unviable. And um, so, you know, when you put it in terms of people making the decision and a patient in the next room uh, off stage, um, you know, that's, that's where the drama and the human, uh, um, the human drama is. And so in writing a play like that, you try to find the, that moment uh, where somebody's got to make a decision and how they go about it. And you get the competing sides in the room and that that's drama. Um, so, the, so that's one way that my, my plays have come about. Um, that's the, until recently I hadn't written many like that, but that is one way. Another way is, you know, another way you mentioned that's just also true for me is you, you suddenly get an idea of, I often get a couple of characters in a situation and some dialogue starts coming to me about it. And, you know, a lot of people, a lot of writers have said this, when you're, when it's really going well and you're really writing well, you feel more like you're taking dictation uh, from your characters than you're actually thinking of their, their dialogue. And you almost can't type it fast enough. Like they're going so fast, your brain's going so fast that it's, it's kind of hard to keep up with it. And that, for me, that's always a sign that I've got characters who are are, are pretty real and pretty. Uh, um, you have got a, a situation that is worth a play. Um, so that often happens, and where that comes from, I don't know. I mean, you know, you you read stuff and you you hear your friends' stories and you watch television and it all goes in into your brain. Why this? piece or that piece comes out is a mystery to me, but when, uh, I'm thankful that it doesn't. And, and often it just kind of hits you, you know, sometimes when you're going to bed, sometimes in the shower, sometimes when you're on a run, um, often times when it's inconvenient to write or uh, <laughs> it's not the most convenient for your, your family, um, but you've got to get the idea down. And, and that is probably the most common way I come upon a story and start working on it. Do you have any playwrights that you have been inspired by or any uh, favorite playwrights that you've read? August Wilson, um, Martin McDonough, uh, I think are fantastic and, and um, you know, just, just a lot of fun. Uh, you know, I could, if, if I sat down and thought about it, I'd probably give you 20 uh, all of whom are, you know, influences on your work and, um, you know, who you really want to uh, read when they, or go see when they come out with a new play. I think there's so many exciting new playwrights right now. I, you know, the, the terrible thing about the pandemic is I got to get down to New York and see some stuff. And, uh, you know, I, I, I may be going back for the first time as early as next week. Uh, I've really missed that, but it really feels like theater is starting to come back and, uh, and get up on the stage and we're coming back to a little bit of normalcy. So um, yay for us. Mm -hmm. Yes, finally. <laughs> Lauren Gunderson is another one I'll throw out. I think she's fabulously funny and, uh, you know, just great stories too. So James, how did you hear about Lights Up? That's a good question. Um, I'd have to go back uh, to my, you know, uh, really badly put together marketing notes. Uh, I think I, I, I ran across you guys in a, um, 
one or another of uh, social media posts uh, in playwright groups and on social media. Uh, there's also a couple of services I subscribe to that give listings for theaters that are looking for plays. Um, so there's a few ways I, I do it. Probably one of those. I, I would like to um, pull a little thread there for a moment since, since Lights Up really is focused on shining a light on playwrights um, and how oftentimes we view that as perhaps a solitary, more solitary mm -hmm. aspect of theater. And then we get everyone in the theater and there's the designers in the community of that. Um, you mentioned some, you keep marketing notes. Can you talk about that just briefly for our listeners? how you go, like what your game plan is for submission, what kind of communities you belong to, how you, how you actually get your work out there? Sure. Um, I don't live in a big theater town. I live between kind of Boston and New York. Um, so a, a lot of playwrights, you know, do it by uh, really getting to know their local theaters and spending a lot of time, uh, you know, meeting people and chatting folks up. And I'm limited in my ability to do that. For most of my career, I, you know, I was uh, helping raise my son uh, <laughs> with my wife, and and you know, you, it didn't lend itself to being away for long periods of time to do stuff like that. And I can't just get in the car and and easily drive there because it's too far. So for me, a lot of it had to be done, you know, by uh, email and the like, and. Submitting and submitting and submitting. Um, you know, there's no way around that. No matter where you live, you just have to send out a lot of scripts. It, when I started, it was almost all postage, and it was expensive. And now, almost nobody will accept a hard copy script. Thank God, you just email stuff. But it still takes a lot of time, and and more than I would like. Generally, you know, there's a, there's constant calls for scripts coming out, and and you kind of look at those and see which ones you have something for and that you, the theater that you're interested in and you start sending things out. And, uh, it's, uh, it's a bit of a treadmill that you're always on. You know, you can't, you can't stop until, yeah, I've gotten to the point where I do have a lot of plays published or posted in certain places where people find them. And, uh, you know, in the last few years, I've been lucky enough to have plays get produced that I didn't, you know, go out and, Get the production that people came to me and wanted to produce it uh but it takes a while to get there and um uh, mainly even now i still send lots of scripts out i sent my script to you guys um when you guys were looking for scripts uh and and that's really how the business gets done um so james before we wrap up christy and i always um ask all of our playwrights the same three questions they're they're very light getting to know you questions <laughs> Um, so and you can answer them as you will. Uh, but before we do that, we always take a moment to kind of hand over the uh, metaphorical microphone, so to speak, to our playwrights, where you can list any websites, social media handles, if you're on New Play Exchange, anywhere that our audience can find you, follow you, if you have work that's published and it's available on Amazon or Drum, anywhere you want. Um, our listeners to gain access to you, we welcome you to to self promote. Promote, <laughs> yeah. No playwright will say no to that. Uh, I I am on the New Play Exchange, and if uh, your audience doesn't know about it, newplayexchange.org I think is the website. Uh, it's run by the National New Play uh, 
network and there are lots and lots of new plays there that you can read you can search for them uh you know using keywords and other things if there's a particular kind of play you're looking for to produce um but i'm there just under james mclinden m-c-l-i-n-d-o-n uh, i'm also on um facebook um i have a website which is not very good but it has information at jamesmclinden.com uh and those are the main places to find me online. My plays uh, are published by Dramatic Publishing, my full-length plays. Um, I've had a number of uh, short plays um, that have been produced by, uh, or rather published by Smith and Krauss uh, in their best 10-minute plays anthologies and applause books, uh, best 10-minute play anthologies for various years. So you can find my plays there. Uh, I've also had plays uh, produced by Next Stage Press and Original Works Publishing, uh, full-length plays. Um, so I think I think that's most of it. Um, that's amazing. We will make sure our listeners find you any and everywhere. So thank, thank you for you. sharing that. <laughs> you bet. Thank you. Do you have a word that might be a favorite word or it might just be a word that delights you or you um, find fascinating? Do you have a specific word right now that you like? <laughs> I actually really like penultimate that Dana used earlier. Um, <laughs> if, I can, if I can steal that, um, that's always a fun word. Uh, yeah, I don't know if uh, if I if I sat here long enough, I'm sure I'd think of something better. But uh, the penultimate is pretty good. It's kind of mean to ask a writer their words, but we do it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I love all my words. Um, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> see sketch comedy loves the callback loves yep, the call yep. <laughs> um, so again we don't want to box you in by using the term favorite but we can go there do you have a favorite or dearly loved or nostalgic um setting or place that you love or hold dear Okay, you don't mean just in my place, you mean just in the whole world. You can answer it. There are many interpretations, but yeah, totally open up to the whole world. Hmm. Uh, well, I, um, that's a great question. Um, I probably have a lot of them. Um, you can but, answer also however you're feeling today. We won't yeah. hold you to this answer next year if we inter interview you again. <laughs> Yeah, maybe my wife's family's place up in Vermont. Um, it's uh, it, we got married there, and uh, yeah, it's just a beautiful spot on Otter Creek. All right, final question is: Do you have an item that you would consider sort of a keepsake or very sentimental, nostalgic, um, just something particularly precious to you? Yes, I do. Um, in 2002, late in September, I went to a baseball game at Fenway Park. Uh, I've been a Red Sox fan for a long time. The Minnesota Twins were playing the Red Sox. Um, and the batter up for the Twins is a left-hander. And he hit a screaming foul ball down into my section, down the left field line. Um, I dug it out of the scrum and pulled it up and, and I still have that ball of the day. It's the only ball I ever got at a baseball game. And the guy who fouled it off, you know, was cut, uh, was traded by the twins 
a, a couple of months later to the Red Sox, and his name was David Ortiz. Uh, at the time, you know, I was I was thrilled to get a ball in a major league game. Never happened to me before, but at, you know, it became somewhat more important <laughs> over the years. Yeah, he struck out on the next pitch. Uh, the season that was the last game I went to that season. That was it. And the next time I saw him, he was you know playing for us. Oh my gosh. Well, one, I just want to point out, that's how you tell a story. That's drama, right? You <laughs> gave us drama <laughs> with the reveal. And two, do you have the ball close by anywhere? You do <laughs> video clips. I just um, love a show and I, tell moment. I do. Hang on. We do love show and tell. We do love show and tell. Oh, drum roll. <laughs> Yay. I'm so excited. Okay, here it is. <gasps> okay. It's got the ticket from the game. That is yep. so awesome. Yep. Oh, look at it. Yeah, real game ball. It's a game ball. You can see the, the brown mud that they rub into it. Yep. It's all yeah. real. <laughs> oh, thank you for sharing. That's so cool. You bet. And thank you for sharing this whole hour with us. We really, truly appreciate it. We loved the play. We love chatting with you. You are now part of Lights Up family. So thank you. Well, thanks, Dana and Chris. I had a lot of fun. That was a good talk. Lights Up is a podcast produced by the Ensemble Theatre of Chattanooga, a 501c3 nonprofit independent theatre company located in southeast Tennessee. Lights Up is hosted by Christy Gallo and Dana Colagiovanni. Sound by Eric Red Wyatt. Graphics by Jamie Goodnight. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, copied, or presented without the express written consent of the Ensemble Theatre of Chattanooga. The plays presented on this podcast are protected by all national and international copyright laws. If you are interested in producing any of the plays featured on Lights Up, contact us and we will get you in touch with the playwright. If you would like your play considered for a future episode or would like to be an actor or reader, please shoot us a message at lightsup at ensembletheaterofchattanooga.com. As a nonprofit, ATC relies on donations and the goodwill of patrons and supporters like you. If you would like to make a one-time donation to ETC, please visit our website for details. You can also support us by giving us a like and rating this podcast. Ensemble Theater of Chattanooga and the Lights Up Podcast are grant recipients to the Sustaining the Humanities through the American Rescue Plan grant program. A program made possible by the National Endowment for the Humanities as part of the $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan Act of 2021, approved by the U.S. Congress and signed into law on March 11. Because of this program, Humanities Tennessee is able to provide $941,454 to 91 organizations throughout the state. The purpose of SHARP grants is to support jobs in the humanities, keep humanities organizations open, and assist the field in its response to and recovery from the needs created or exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic. These grants may focus on humanities projects or leveraging operational support stemming from the devastating impact of the coronavirus pandemic. They may also help organizations plan for the future and begin the long process of response and recovery to the pandemic. ETC and the Lights Up Podcast would like to thank Humanities Tennessee and the National Endowment for the Humanities 
for this amazing opportunity.